the area with one such family, the Mustertons, of Hazelhurst Manor, and he would be arriving in the family carriage with Lord Masterton. There was no Lady Masterton. She had died many years before in childbirth. It would not be true to say that we were, in modern parlance, politically uncommitted, but we were not party political. We would have entertained the Marquis of Salisbury with the same degree of pomp as we displayed for Mr. Gladstone, but with less nervousness. For no one thought the Tory leader a great man, as the People's William undoubtedly was. More, he was a living legend. We were impartial politically because we were bankers. Fearing's Bank was one of the great financial institutions which had made the City of London the centre of the world's business. We retained excellent relations with the leading men of both political parties. We would have lavishly feasted Beelzebub if he had happened to be either Prime Minister or Leader of the Opposition. Much of what I think I remember about that day were things that were told to me later, I expect. Mr Mackay and Mrs Needham were fixtures at Blakemere for many years after that year of 1884, and they talked of Mr Gladstone's dinner often. It was a sort of landmark day. In fact, Blakemere, though an immense and draughty pile of echoing corridors, distant ceilings, and excessively heavy decoration, did somehow manage to retain the loyalty of its vast army of domestics and many of the people who were rushing around frantically below stairs that day remained there until they retired or died, and were friends to me in my young womanhood and later. Companionable fixtures in a changing world. Certainly, I saw few other people that day, in the hours leading up to dinner. My mother was occupied with dressing herself, drearily, I have no doubt, and my father was demonstrating his independence by taking a couple of guests out shooting. My nanny was probably penning letters of application for similar positions. So, I was below stairs during the presentation of other guests to the great man, and the mixing and mingling that preceded eating, below stairs, when the guests were paired off strictly in accordance with rank and political or local importance, and below stairs, when the great silver tureens of turtle soup were taken up to commence the grand dinner. It was, I suppose, around eight o'clock, when, on a signal from one of the footmen, racing between the dining hall and kitchens, Beatrice came and put out her hand. I took hers willingly. It was the hand of all others that I was most familiar with. She was the closest thing to a mother I had for many years, until she left Blakemere for unhappy marriage and very happy motherhood. Together, we toiled up the stone steps into the main house. That word is ridiculously inadequate. Then, down the endless corridors, of which I saw little higher than the skirting boards, until finally we came to one of the doors to the great hall. Beatrice had chosen the door carefully, to give me the best possible view of our distinguished guest. She opened it a crack, then slipped me just inside it. Keep very quiet, she admonished. Don't do any of your sillies to get noticed.
It was precious little I was noticed in that house, sillies or no sillies. I stood there, tiny and wide-eyed. It was not just I who was dwarfed, but everyone at table, everyone in the room. Even the great Mr. Mackay seemed merely a fraction of his normal self. The great hall was inspired by, no, modelled on, a medieval banqueting hall, as envisaged by one of the illustrators of Sir Walter Scott. It rose up still higher than most of Blakemere's ground-floor rooms, leaving nothing above it but servants' bedrooms, and its ceiling was raftered with great oak beams. Lower down, the nineteenth century predominated. The long table supported like a circus strongman an endless series of tureens, sauce boats, roasting platters, a pair.